If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we went through part of this last week. We ended at verse 13, but we're going to go back and uh, begin at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. It's not that many verses, 13 through 20. So let us hear the word of the Lord. John the Apostle writes and says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the, excuse me, yes, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress, up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to give us understanding in the scriptures and bless us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to this passage... Some interesting symbols, but uh, they seem to correspond closely to some events that are yet in the future. John uh, begins, well, we're going to begin in verse 13, where a voice comes from heaven. It's not on earth, it's not an earthly origin, it's a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead. So John is told to write this down because this is important. This is uh, to be a record and a testimony. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Well, he's been talking about the spread of the kingdom of Antichrist and the violence and the destruction that have come upon God's people. That You know, we had the, the dragon giving his authority to the beast, and then we have the beast that came out of the sea, which generally understood as the Roman Empire or pagan Romanism. Then later we have the beast that comes up out of the earth, which at least the Reformers understood to be the rise of the papal Antichrist. Um, and then after that, we have the second beast who makes an image of the first beast. can get rather confusing. Um, and then commands everybody to, to honor the beast and to receive a mark, the mark 666, on their right hand or their forehead. Generally, the image of the beast, at least the older commentators understand that perhaps to be, at least by application, if not fulfillment, to be the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, so you had the the beast 
that was and is not and yet is. You had this, the kingdom of, of Rome or the empire of the Rome, Romans. Uh, it was in existence for a long time and then in the really in the 5th century when it collapsed and then you have something else come up a couple of centuries later. So you have this kingdom or this empire that was and is not and yet is and that comes up later in the book of uh, Revelation. So we have this to, to deal with what does all this mean. Well, one thing, it's whether that's the interpretation of it or not, it's definitely an application historically. And we see here that the, there were many saints slaughtered. You know, I just heard the uh, the attempt to try to get some of the persecution stopped in some of the countries in Africa where tens of thousands of Christians have been uh, butchered by uh, some of the Muslim tribes that wander around with no other purpose than to, to kill Christians. And, you know, the smart thing to do would be probably, once you look in to see where their weapons are coming from, who is buying this stuff for them and shipping it there, we might find out that some of our supposed allies are not as uh, trustworthy as we think. But regardless, or regardless of that, um, we've seen more persecutions in the last hundred years than existed in the early church. There's been more Christians slaughtered. If you look at the, the butchery uh, of communist China, what, what happened in Russia, what happens all over the world. Uh, and so the saints here are told early on in the first century, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is from John's time forward, although they were always blessed. So there's a special blessing. And he says, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. You know, for the Christian, the Bible tells us that when we uh, pass from this life, we go to be in the presence of the Lord. And so death has lost its sting. You know, we, we I think, you know, even though we anxiously, nervously, anxiously sometimes expect, well, yes, I'm going to physically die, but, you know, I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. As I've mentioned before, I do believe that in glory, those who are trusting in the Lord, once they pass from this life, and I think yeah, you'll experience this if you're a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus. I think we're going to look back and go, that's what I was afraid of? That's it? Jesus said there, he that, you know, in John 5:24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me uh, has everlasting life. Present tense, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has already, I had the word already there because in the Greek it's a perfect tense, meaning it's it's taken place in the past with present results, but it's already passed out of death into life. Why? Because of Jesus, because Christ died and rose again and you're in him. And notice here, it's not just those who die, it's those who die in the Lord. Now that can mean for the sake of Christ. It could also mean any true believer. They die in the Lord and they rest from their labors. So that's, I think, the preface of what follows here, because we're really seeing two harvests in front of us. It says, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Very clearly this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this harvest taking place. Uh, it says, they looked and behold a white cloud. Well, Christ is, we're told, is going to return at the end on, on, on a cloud. If you remember in Acts chapter 2 when they saw Jesus go into heaven, the two angels that stood by our two men, it says in Acts chapter 1, they stood by and they said to them, you know, why do you look into heaven? The same Jesus that you just now, you've seen going to heaven is going to come in like manner. Well, he went up bodily 
he went up and it says a cloud received him out of their sight. And we said, well, how is he at the right hand of God now? Then where did he go? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> okay, I know he is at, the, at God's right hand. Someone said, was he in a different dimension or how did this take place? Uh, it says in um, Hebrews that Christ has passed through the heavens. And so it's like, well, he's in the presence of God physically. He's there and he's going to come again on the last day. He will return. It's not a big effort for the Lord to do this. Uh, the Holy Spirit transcends time and space and all those things. So for Christ to be uh, having passed through the heavens to be in the presence of God, it's it's no effort for God to do these things. For us, we might scratch our heads and say, well, what are the physics in this? Well, you know, if you look at the uh, mathematical probability and how all these things are to be measured and weighed and figured out, the Lord Jesus is the one that established all of that. He's the one that brought the creation and all the mathematical principles that we discover uh, from time to time into existence. So here he looks and he sees a white cloud. It's probably not a reference to the second coming, though. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. That's a term Jesus used for himself often during his ministry. He is the Son of Man. That is, he is God incarnate. He is um, God manifested in the flesh. He is truly a son of man. Um, in Hebrew, sometimes it would be Ben Adam, son of Adam. That's usually the, the Hebrew phrase. And so here he has on his head a golden crown. Now this is a victor's crown. This is a Stephanos. Uh, if you remember the heads of the dragon, the, they had crowns, but they were uh, diadems. Uh, the, the Greek word uh, is that's from that Greek word diadem. And so uh, those were you know, royal crowns that sometimes are usurped, sometimes are bestowed. But a Stephanos, that is a victor's crown. This is what he has on his head. He has a golden victor's crown. This is a reference to Christ exalted, Christ glorified. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. Well, the scripture we're told is that, you know sharper than a two-edged sword. This is a sickle, but it's sharp. And another angel came out of the temple, so this comes from the very presence of God, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So it's like, well, what's going on here? Is this the, the judgment? So we're told, so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, the terms that are used for this reaping have to do with, these are terms, when it says harvest and thrust in and, and reap, these are terms that have to do generally with the reaping of grape, excuse me, of, of, of wheat. So first you have this wheat harvest, and then I believe we have this, this a second judgment that comes, uh, probably at the same time, but uh, you told in verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So, this judgment is twofold. First, we see Christ come and he brings in, I believe, those that are his. That's the reaping of the of the grain. Secondly, we have the one who comes out from the temple and he also has a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. Now, why John mentions that, I'm not exactly sure. But he does say he came out from the altar. And if you remember, it was the altar under it was where the martyrs were crying out and asking God to send judgment and justice. Uh, they had had their lives violently taken away, and they said, How long, O Lord, do you not uh, avenge us? And it wasn't a complaint, it was a prayer. And so this angel comes out from the altar, 
I think the idea is that the place where the prayers of the saints are heard, and, and this is the same angel, he has power over fire, which can be viewed as judgment. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. So this is a little different. For her grapes are fully ripe. In other words, uh, it's time. If you remember when uh, the Israelites came out of Egypt, one of the things they were told that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. God is patient even with the wicked, but there's a time when he's not ready to send judgment. He gives them a space to repent. We saw this at the beginning of the book of Revelation with Jezebel, uh, who was a woman and uh, was wicked. And God tells us, or the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that he gave her space to repent, and she repented not. So there's that space that God gives even to the wicked to repent. Well, here we're told that the grapes are fully ripe. Time for repentance is past. Their sins are filled up. In other words, God's patience has come to an end. Some would say, well, doesn't it say that God's mercies are everlasting? Yes, they are toward his people. His mercies are everlasting, but there is an end to his patience. You know, God will only put up with the wicked so long. If you remember in the days of Noah, when he told Noah that, you know, 120 years and he was going to send judgment. There was a time appointed for repentance. Here we're told that uh, that time has passed, and so now uh, the vines of the earth, or the, uh, the grape vines, are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now the first harvest, that's not said of it. That first harvest was brought in, the wheat harvest. Here, though, these grapes are, were told, and this is symbolic of the wicked, they're thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, generally understood to be about between 180 and 200 miles. Uh, it's, you know, this is uh, hyperbole being used, I believe, show the extent of it. Uh, blood that goes for 200 miles that's as deep as a horse's bridle would be high. That's a huge slaughter. Now, if we're to take that literally, I think we might be making a mistake. The idea is that it's violent and it's permanent and it's deep and it's thorough. So here we that's the passage that we've just looked at. If you remember, this started out with the elect on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And we learn some things from this. First of all, we see here that uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. When Christ comes in judgment, first he gathers his wheat into his barn. That's what he actually said elsewhere. Uh, these are those uh, elect ones that were sealed. And so we're, we're safe. Before the judgment falls on the wicked, God makes sure his people are provided for. If you remember when all the judgments fell upon Egypt, it said in the land of Goshen, things were different. That's where that's where the, the Hebrews were. Uh, when the darkness came and the other plagues in the land of Goshen, where God's people were gathered and where they lived, those plagues didn't fall on them. When Egypt was sent darkness, there was light in Goshen. When there were plagues sent, there was uh, health in Goshen. And so God looked out for his people. And so one thing we see in this is the gospel goes out 
uh, and as the, the, the reaper goes to, to bring in the harvest, we see there's going to be a great harvest, both of the wheat and of the grapes. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, if I have this written down correctly, Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist was preaching, uh, and John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, he says to those that had come, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to his baptism, mainly it appears to observe, really at, at verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the people that thought they were the, they were the holy ones, they were better than everyone else. Uh, coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, is what he's saying, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, that is their line of descent, their ethnicity. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, being twofold. Some say, well, is that the same thing? Uh, Most understand it to me. You know, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit is that baptism. Or you're going to have the wrath of God fall on you. So he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. And note this, I think this informs us in Revelation 14. And gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now chaff here I think is the same as the grapes that we've seen earlier. So he's telling them, it's a twofold judgment. It's the same judgment. It's like when the cloud came. You know, we saw that Jesus is seen on a cloud. If you remember in the Exodus, the cloud of God's presence was there. To God's people, it provided light, warmth in the in the cold of the desert night, and light also, and a protection and a shade for them over the day. But when the Egyptians came, it was a fire and a wall that kept them from attacking God's people. So God uses clouds. So here we see, though, that the wheat he gathers into the barn, the chaff is burned up with unquenchable fire. In other words, they will be burning in the lake of fire. And so there's going to be a great harvest. In Matthew chapter 13, a few verses over, a few chapters over, I should say, uh, when the Lord Jesus... Matthew chapter 13... Uh, as we told the the story of the uh, parable, we'll go back and read in verse 37. Uh, They want to know the the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's where the the wheat came from. The Son of Man. Note, same phrase used in Revelation 14. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. It could also be understood as messengers. 
Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if we uh, go down to verse 49, we see, as Christ has spoken more about the nature of the kingdom, he said, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so, there's going to be a judgment, and there's going to be a heaven, and there's going to be a hell. In Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, we read, uh, verse 4, the, uh, well, let's, verse 3, uh, talking about the righteous, uh, that is those who are trusting in Christ, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his, its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. In verse 4 and 5. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So Psalm 1 starts off with a serious warning. And so in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, the very last chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, it says, the very last verse of Isaiah says, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Uh, Reference to the damned after the judgment, that they will be a spectacle of God's judgment throughout eternity. In the Gospel according to Mark, Uh, Chapter 9, Christ is speaking um, to his disciples about those who follow him and those who don't. Uh, And he says in, in, uh, they said, you know, in verse 38, well, I'll just read that. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones, meaning referring to children, one of these little ones, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, that is, fall into sin, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. referring to Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 40. 
5 of Mark 9. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus isn't actually telling people, it's generally understood here, to physically cut off their hand or their foot or gouge out their eye. What he's saying, if your hand is leading you into sin or your foot is leading you into sin or your eye, deal with it. Deal with it. Quit going where you know you shouldn't be. Quit doing things you shouldn't be doing. Quit looking at things you know you shouldn't be looking at. Because we're talking here about the evidences of salvation and true repentance. He's not saying, you know, you, you, only those who never sin. What he's saying is, if you've got sin in your life, you need to deal with it. You need to deal with it. Note this. It's on you because the, hell is nothing to play around with. And there are plenty of people, and this is, I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, as your friend and your pastor, I have a duty to say this to you and to myself also. There are plenty of people who are sitting in pew, who were sitting in pews, who are now in hell. There's been plenty of guys standing in pulpits who had some type of preaching who are now in hell. So just where you're thinking, well, I'm in church, so I'm safe. The only place that's safe is in Jesus Christ. You can be in Jesus Christ in church. You can be in Jesus Christ outside of church. Okay? But you better be in Christ. And so take this to heart. Like I say, I'm not trying to trouble anyone. If you're having a struggle with sin, the Lord's not going to throw you away. Go to Jesus. That's the difference. We read about these people that didn't deal with sin. They're ones that never came to Christ. They never really repented. Repentance is turning from sin, but it's turning to the Lord. A lot of people get down that first part. They don't touch, you know, what does it say? I don't drink, smoke, or chew, nor hang around with them that do. You know, and it's like, well, that's good, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Okay, because there's people in cults that will be able to say the same thing. And they're, but they're not trusting in Christ. Repentance is turning from sin to God in Christ. Turning to Jesus. That's what repentance is. So Jesus promises that he's going to raise up his people. In John chapter 5, quoted that one verse earlier, John 5:24, but then note what he says right after that. In John chapter 5 verse 24, Jesus said, well first of all he says he's the one that has been appointed to be the judge of all men on that final day, even now. <clears throat> verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, that is in the Father, God the Father, has present tense, Greek's very clear. Okay, eke is the Greek word there. It's a present active indicative uh, third person singular verb, in case you're wondering. From echo is the word that means to have. Uh, he that hears my word and believes on, in him who simply has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. Note that. The hour is coming and now is, Jesus is talking about this present time, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
talking about when men hear the gospel preached and by the work of God's Holy Spirit, it enters into their very heart of hearts. They hear the offer of forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ. God uses that to bring them to saving faith. I hope that's happened to you, or shall happen if it hasn't yet. Note, he says, that they will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Again, we saw that in Revelation 14. Christ being fully man, he is qualified to be judge right now and on the last day. But then Christ goes on. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave. So this is different than what he just spoke about. The first one we understand generally to be those who are spiritually dead who have to be born again. And you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That is, your spirit needs to be regenerated, be born again. But now he's talking about those who are in the graves. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, just like Lazarus, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now some say, well, wait a minute, do good. I thought salvation was by grace. Well, if all your sins are taken away, the only thing that's going to come up on Judgment Day are those good things the Holy Spirit brought forth. Your sins have been washed away. You don't have to be afraid. But we do need to be a people zealous of good works, okay? Uh, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In chapter 6, Christ says in verse 39 of chapter 6 of John's Gospel, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So note that. So believers will be raised up on the last day. Verse 40, the same thing. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then again... At verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then finally in verse 54, Christ, uh, speaking of being joined to him, uh, the, the Jews stumbled because he said he was the living bread, and they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they were like, is he talking about cannibalism? And he was not. Uh, but he says, uh, most assured, verse 53, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he goes on, and so we're told here that he taught these things in verse 60. It says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained, about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He said, You're going to see me physically leave the earth. I'm not talking about physically eating my flesh and physically drinking my blood. He said, uh, Again, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. That's 
John 6.63. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus is eating his flesh, drinking his blood. He means having his life in you, having that vital, close connection. As if you had eaten his flesh and drank his blood. If you do that, it becomes part of you. Saying spiritually, you need to have my life in you by God's work. So we see this picture that we saw in Revelation 14. Kind of we, we go to these other texts to get an idea. What's this talking about? It's about the harvest, I believe, uh, at the end of the age. And so we close by looking at Titus chapter 2 because we see here the blessed hope. Titus tells us, or Paul tells us, I should say God tells us, I guess, shouldn't I, through Paul writing to Titus in chapter 2 beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. The gospel's gone out. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age or this present world. Then he, note what he says here. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is declared there to be God. He is. He's also our Savior. The glorious appearing, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope. So when we hear of the judgment, Christ coming, the end of, of the age, when the wicked are going to be destroyed, there's going to be all types of upheaval, the resurrection is going to happen. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we didn't read that passage, but that's where he said, we're not going to go before those of us who are alive, not going to go before those who have died or are asleep in Jesus, because they're going to be raised up, and then all of us together will be caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds and then the judgment will occur, but we'll be with the Lord. That's a blessed hope. It can be an unsettling idea. Whoa, there's heaven, hell, and you know worms that don't die, and fire that's never quenched. Hell is an ugly place, and it's eternal. We saw that already. It said the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever as they're tortured in the presence of the, the holy angels, of the saints, and in the presence of the Lamb, the one who could have saved them, they turned their back on, and now they're subjects of God's wrath. But for believers, the second coming of Jesus is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I believe we can look forward to revival. I've just been in my prayer. I mentioned about the nations coming to Christ, the Jewish people being brought back in and regrafted in to the native olive tree or the, that they're part of. And we, I think we have wonderful things to look forward to as the gospel goes out in this World, I think we're going to see the gospel triumph, uh, be triumphant rather. The Great Commission is not a suggestion; it's a battle plan. The nations are going to be discipled. Jesus is going to be victorious. But, however, our eschatology informs our daily living. The blessed hope of the church is that Jesus is coming again. You're going to see Jesus someday, and either He comes back or you go to be with Him. Uh, though we may not know the exact day of our Lord's coming and the final judgment, the one thing we do know of is its certainty. That's the blessed hope. Jesus is coming again. You're going to see him. Abraham had this hope, and look how long it took till the Lord came. It was almost, what was it, 2,000 years almost. It's been 2,000 years since he was here the first time. Jesus is coming again. You're going to see him, and your relationship with him is going to determine where you spend eternity. So Paul says, we look looking uh, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing 
of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and here's the practical part of it, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Christ died. Yes, we look forward to it, but we have to always remember the first time he came was to die for us so that he could get sin out of our lives and renew us in the image of God so that we could finally become what and who we're supposed to be. That's what salvation and sanctification is all about. There's nothing phony in it. You know, the word hypocrite means a phony. In Greek theater, it was somebody that put a mask in front of them, and that's what a hypocrite is. Jesus takes that away from his people. You get to, you know, there's nothing phony about it. You get to be who you're really supposed to be. And that's wonderful. That's what salvation is. He came, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, that is sin, transgression, those things that are displeasing to God, and purify unto himself a unique people, zealous of good works. Okay, you're not saved by works, but once you're saved, you want to serve God. You want to give Him everything. You realize what He did to save you? It transforms your life. It's like, Lord, what can I do? I want to show my gratitude to You. And I don't think I'm doing what I should be doing. And at least I'm not doing enough. You can never do enough. But Lord, I want to do more. I want to glorify Your name. I want to be Your servant. I want my life to count for something in this world. And when I see You in glory, I don't want to be ashamed that I just lived a selfish, wicked life. Lord, I want to... Really be your servant now. Well, that's the desire that God puts in the hearts of his saints. And so Christ came to give us that hope. First, the, the blessed joy of redemption. And secondly, he's coming again. There's going to be a judgment. For the wicked is the begin of an ever, beginning of an everlasting nightmare of terror and hell. For the righteous, it's to get the rest from their labors and their works follow them. And they're with the Lord and his people. And they're going to be in a place where all that's known is love. There's no sin. There's no mean words spoken. There's no harsh things done. That's heaven. You get to be with those that love the Lord. So may God bring this about in our lives as we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and that great harvest. Let's pray. Father, be with us now, we pray, and seal your word to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your promise that there will be a judgment and that you are coming again in glory. And So help us to keep that blessed hope in our hearts. Lord, we pray you would sustain it and help us to look to you and have that hope, that purifying hope in us. This we ask, Father, with, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.